Welcome to season seven of Jesus Has Left the Building. We'll hear from guests all over the country who've been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid, outside the box, I mean, outside the church building practices that have inspired us. Our topic of discussion has emerged out of intersectional feminism, leaning into feminist and womanist practices born out of the stories of women, ancient and modern, and are practiced by and include all people as we ritualize relationship. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, womanists, feminists, activists, scholars, authors, and liturgy makers have left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. In this second episode, Working Within the Fragments, we hear from Dr. Christina Lazardi-Hadgeby. Dr. Christina is the Director of the Office of Professional Formation and Assistant Professor of Leadership and Formation at ILF School of Theology. She also co-directs the Doctorate of Ministry in Prophetic Leadership and coordinates the Certificate in Latinx Studies for the ILF and Denver University Joint PhD in the Study of Religion. She is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and received her Master's of Divinity from ILIF and PhD from the University of Colorado in Educational Leadership, Research, and Policy. Christina's previous ministry roles span the areas of undergraduate multicultural student affairs, hospital chaplaincy, congregational and young adult faith formation, and denominational leadership. Dr. Christina has extensively worked on de- and post-colonial theory, frameworks, and practices. Her publications include articles, Unmasking Colonial Practices, Frameworks Toward Post- and Decolonial Pastoral Leaderships, Processes Toward Post- and Decolonial Pastoral Leaderships, and a book called Explore Vocational Discovery and Ministry. You can find the links to these articles and resources on our website. So welcome, Dr. Christina Lazardi-Hadgeby. I call her Dr. Christina because she is my professor at ILIF School of Theology um, in this Doctorate of Ministry program. And I really wanted her to be on this and talk to her and share her story with the world because she is not only a brilliant scholar and researcher, um, I can't even... I can't even go there because she is lovely and kind and also outrageously intimidating because her mind is amazing. We're just going to say it out loud. Um, we're just going to say all the things out loud. And um, so I wanted her to be on this and I wanted her to talk about her work, not just at ILIF, but her work um, in de- and post-colonial theory in which she's like, oh shoot, you're going there, Marta. Well, it's because, I mean, I just have to talk about it and talk about it because I need to really learn it. And that's the only way, as you know, I've said a million times is to embody and be in relationship around it um, because I still struggle. And I know that there are like lots of people out there that also struggle, but um, in this program that I'm in, it was her class that really gave me the inspiration and passion for this work around intersectional feminism in the worshiping space. Um, and what's the name of that class again? Decolonizing Congregational Leadership. 
I know, which is like every single pastor on the face of the earth needs to take it. And somehow it needs to go public and denominational. And I know that you're going to do that at some point. Um, but tell us a little about your work. Um, I mean, I know I said a whole bunch of things, but of course we want to hear from you, your work in the world and what it means for you to lift up voices that have not been centered in your context. And I know that you have multiple different contexts because also listeners out there, she's also a UCC minister and she's one of my colleagues. So <laughs> tell us about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, Marta and Mandy for the invitation and for um, your kind introduction. Um, that's <laughs> a little intimidating in and of itself to, um, to live up to in some ways. But um, yeah, as you said, um, my name is Christina Lizardi Hajbi. And for me to tell you a little bit about my work in the world, I feel like I need to first tell you a little bit about who I am. And so yes. um, I am a biracial Puerto Rican, Italian, second generation human being who lives in the territory that is called the United States. And I was born and raised just three hours south of Denver in a little town called Trinidad in the state of Colorado. So um, I am a first generation college graduate uh, and the first in my family to get a master's degree, let alone a doctorate. I am, as you said, also a UCC minister. I am a woman. I am queer. I identify as queer, as bisexual. I've been married to a man, uh, my husband, Ali, for 15 years, almost 16. Um, and he is Muslim and he comes from the country of Morocco in North Africa. Mm. And so um, I would say for me, all of those things inform the work that I do in the world or the work that I try to do in the world. Currently, that work involves being an academic, a teacher and a learner at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. And um, I co-direct the Doctor of Ministry and Prophetic Leadership. And we're so lucky and thrilled to have you as a learner, as a co-learner on this journey that is theological education. And so I, I do a lot of things um, at ILIF, <laughs> but hopefully they all center around the work of teaching and learning. I also coordinate the certificate in Latinx studies for our joint PhD program. And I oversee all of the contextual education at ILIF for our master's students, which is our clinical pastoral education, CPE and internship. Um, which um, is, is a really fun kind of work, fun kind of endeavor, in addition to teaching courses on leadership. Um, and for me, that means teaching courses on post-colonial and decolonial theory and theology and how we think about leadership. So my work as an educator is really to challenge and expand imaginations and possibilities for what doing and being in the world might look like for humans. Um, and 
for me, that comes out of a passion for not only the church, but for the flourishing of all peoples within and beyond Christianity. And as a UCC minister, I, I've served at the highest levels of the United Church of Christ denomination. I, I oversaw a team. I directed the Center for Analytics, Research, and Data for the United, United Church of Christ national offices, um, looking at trends around denominational growth and decline and data about our ordained ministers and our authorized ministers. And doing that work just informed my own view and my own desire to see different forms, different ways, rather than having um, perspectives and I would say worldviews that were simply white Protestant denominationalism in a colonial structure and framework. And that's, that's really part of my endeavor at ILIF is to help students and even colleagues begin to expand ways of doing and being that move us beyond that as a church and as people of faith. Yeah, I would say that you have a very particularly, particularly unique intersection of, you know, the scholarly work and the practical work at ILIF. Would you say that's the case? I think so. I really do. And I, I consider that to be a gift and a set of gifts that I continue to bring to the world, we are in many ways the sum of our experiences. And so for me, <laughs> um, I bring a diversity of experiences into a space that is often not a diverse space in terms of experience. So for folks who are traditional academics who specialize in, and have expertise in one particular area, biblical studies or history of Christianity or preaching, I'm sort of a, Jill of all trades in some mm -hmm. ways, right? I have, yeah. and so I'm able to sort of see things in a way that maybe others may not be able to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Um, what are you, I guess I wanna know, like I love the idea of forms and ways and practices and bringing it to that space. How How is that going in the institution, the educational institution? Like, what is that like? to be teaching that in that space, because not only are you de dealing with um, the structures and systems of Protestant churches in the US, but you're also dealing with the systems and structures of institutional life in the US. Um, and I know that both of those have a similar way of functioning. And, um, and so what is that like to um, be teaching it, be practicing it, and being in relationship with students and people that are also trying to navigate that or maybe not navigate? Like, what are you seeing in that realm? Mm. Yeah, as, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about that. As someone who has spent the majority of her career in institutions and prim primarily white institutions, I think for me, it's about working in the fragments. And theologian Willie James Jennings talks about this in his book, After Whiteness and Education and Belonging. And I, I love that book. I love everything 
that he says in that book. And part of what he says is we need to become fragment workers. How do we work in the spaces in between of institutional life, institutional processes, mm -hmm. procedures? Mm -hmm. How do we help transform those ways of doing and being from the inside? And how do we even in some ways amass power to do that? For those of us who are sort of on the fringes of institutional life, whether it be, we be women, women of color, queer folks, uh, men of color, I, I think that it takes that kind of creativity and working within the spaces and working with the fragments of what we see as valuable in those spaces and working to transform the fragments that we see as problematic. And I don't think this is easy work. I think mm -hmm. it's pretty difficult work. And when I work, when I have conversations with students who are engaging in their internships, for example, I always see this spectrum of responses to those who are working within institutions, whether it be a nonprofit for the first time, getting sort of the inner workings of a nonprofit or a community group, or in a church where they're learning about governance and how things work in a Protestant church. There are always two extremes of responses that I find from students. The first one is, um, let's just burn it all down. It's all bad. Burn it down to the ground. And, That's me over here. Right, right. I want to do all the things all the time. And Dr. Christina had to be like, and we need to do one piece of it. <laughs> right. And that's, that's, that's essentially the fragment work, right? Right. Um, and so the other end of the spectrum, students are like, I don't want to engage with institutions at all then. Like, I, I just want to remove myself from institutions and I want to do my own thing, right? Like, I just want to like be who I imagine myself to be, maybe start a new thing. And I believe that both of those responses are helpful and they're necessary, but I question them because I think sometimes, and not for everyone, but I think for sometimes those come from colonial urgings. So it's a luxury mm. and a privilege to be able to want to burn down the system. Mm -hmm. But people who have been in those systems for years and at the margins and have been working to change those systems, mm -hmm. people of color, like, like there are people that are still working in these systems. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that they can't burn it down, right? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. There has to be an acknowledgement that um, burning things down is, is actually a privilege. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to even say that. The other end of the spectrum to disengage with institutions is also something that comes from great privilege mm -hmm. to, for someone to move away from an institution and say, I'm going to do my own thing. It's going to be original. Um, and I don't have to deal with institutions um, and the bureaucracy mm -hmm. or the injustices that happen there is also a point of privilege to be able to do that economically um, in, in other ways, right? And, mm -hmm. and I like to say, and I like to ask the question, what makes you think that if you burn it all down or become completely independent of religious structures, mm -hmm. that you won't actually replicate yourself what you have seen in those structures? Because human mm -hmm. beings mm -hmm. in the post-colonial, post-modern, 
late capitalist age are going to replicate those no matter what. Mm -hmm. The question is, how do we be intentional and more self-reflective and self-reflexive in how we do those things so that Mm -hmm. we can then respond in small ways to actually Mm -hmm. doing decolonial acts Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. repair, um, healing, and writing wrongs, writing injustice. Mm -hmm. No, I really appreciate that actually. And so it's almost like it's this art form that you are balancing with each individual and with all your um, students and communities. And and that feels like the most liberative and just way that you are um, bringing those voices and those stories to the center. Um, acknowledging that all their, all their experiences and all their, that matter, that they all matter and that you're going to work with them for this unique outcome. Um, like that's, that is skillful and, um, and hard and like, feels like the real work. And so I can, I can really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's hard because one, one is discerning vocation and where they see themselves in the world and the kind of work that they're wanting to do. It's difficult to envision um, just how hard this work is. And there are moments when it's easy to quit and, and there's certainly not mm-hmm. like <laughs> nobody's going to get rich off of doing this kind of this kind of work and it is hard and I think there are days too that I just want to sort of throw my hands up in the system Mm -hmm. and to say it's it's hopeless or or I feel Mm -hmm. powerless Mm -hmm. and I have to bring myself back to a space of well what is my work to do what is mine to hold Mm -hmm. and what is not mine to hold Mm -hmm. and how does that inform my own gifts Mm -hmm. in the world and how does that feed and nurture my own gifts and skills Mm -hmm. Um, and and not working beyond those for me is always a helpful reminder to help keep me centered and focused on the work that I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's like this steady ongoing journey. Yeah. So far we've recorded um, two episodes before this of this season of the podcast, both with people who are doing, doing new things. Right. Um, And, and I mean, I would say like, they're not completely removed from the institution. Um, they are, you know, kind of in a framework, but it's a very different sort of work than the work that um, Marta and I have been doing like in an established congregation. Um, and this is like, I don't know, this is like this interesting question that is really kind of coming up for me is what are the possibilities, right? Of like, um, of can we expect real change to happen within the institution? Um, that is and our what, big fat hairy question. Like, what does that look like? And and like what like what are we looking for? What it what what do you see as some of those pieces of change? Do we just like to have need to have like magnifying glasses on all the time to see these little things? Like I don't know. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I probably inadvertently created a false dichotomy, which is that we can separate ourselves from institutional life, um, which we cannot ultimately 
mm-hmm. completely do that. And I think that's one of the, the things right. that I share with students as well, because, and it's not a bad thing to try to, to do something new, right? It's just an awareness of like the larger systemic structures that inform who we are that we can't ever really escape from. So doing new things, I think for me is something that I get excited by. And I know others who, who have these gifts in the world and, and in themselves that they must then bring out into the world, right? And, I, and I've seen that in lots of ways, especially with students and alums of ILIF. In terms of change, I love talking about organizational change. It's one of my things that I just love to discuss and ruminate about. Adrian Marie Brown, who I love, her book, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, is one of my favorite go-to resources. And I've taught chapters or the whole book in almost every class I've taught at ILIF so far. And she says that there are two main kinds of change. There are shocks, like big changes that happen at once that sort of shock systems into radical um, foundational changes. So she uses a description of natural disasters, right? Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, those sorts of things. That's the kind of shock uh, in terms of a level of change. The other kind of change she mentions is slides, things that happen incrementally over time. And I've found that institutions and institutional life, unless there's some kind of big shock that awakens an institution to sort of these larger dynamics and radical shifts, most likely the change that happens is slides, that things are sliding, things are happening incrementally, and sometimes change is regressive. So it's not ever linear, right? So sometimes Mm -hmm. you feel like you're going full steam ahead and great things are happening and things are shifting and then you'll get resistance out of nowhere and things will feel like they're going, you know, 10 steps backwards. And that's also common. That's also sort of the nature of organizational change. There will always be resistance. And, um, you know, there's always a group of people who are like, yes, let's do this. And then there's a group of people who are like, could go either way. And then there's a group of people who are like, no, we shouldn't do this. Often those people are the most vocal people uh, in institutions, but I think the work of leadership is to harness the momentum and um, the energy where it is in the institution to help move things in a way that feels more life-giving and whole for humans and for people who are part of that group. And it's really hard when you have things like capitalist structures, like building maintenance and taxes and employees and all of those things in an institution that have to be attended to, where it can't just all be about the vision or the bottom line, Mm -hmm. uh, the vision beyond the bottom line Mm -hmm. um, in those ways. And I think, at least in mainline Protestantism, we focus too much on the former without attention to the latter. So those new ministries that are popping up are very exciting. The hope is that they don't become institutionalized in the same ways Mm -hmm. that our current structures are. And 
I mean, this can mean anything from how does an organization make decisions, right? Like, and this is what you're talking about around intersectional feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, do, can we do this together? Can we do this collaboratively without hierarchy, without the structure? Mm-hmm. Um, can we do this without Robert's rules of order? Can we do this <laughs> with um, an acknowledgement of power dynamics Mm-hmm. and talking about those in real ways within mm-hmm. an organization. Um, it's all about process for me. And so I, I, I think change is very much an intentional um, attention to process, mm-hmm. even over product or solution or end point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like, um, you know, the the one thing you said about that kind of draws me into this next question is this idea of like, um, when you're in the institution, there are structures of power that are there regardless, right? Like as the pastor of a church, as the instructor in the class, you hold some amount of power, right? So what are some practical ways that you, Christina, like step step out of that position while still like recognizing that it's there. Cause I think we can't just say, oh, I'm going to not be the instructor when everybody knows you are. Right? right. So like, how, how do you, like, what are some practical ways you do that in the classroom that, you know, people could kind of latch on to? Yeah, yeah that's a great be, question. Uh, this is going to be an especially important answer, Dr. Christina, to my <laughs> work. This was one of the big questions that came up. How do I like do these worship services um, with, within intersectional feminism? Um, without still being in that position of power. And, you know, as I've been working on it the last week, it's like literally impossible. So I'd love to hear. It's super hard. And, you know, uh, like, what does that increment look like, I guess? And yes, the question that Mandy threw out there. Yeah, it's a great question. And the first answer is that you can't escape the power. Mm-hmm. Intersectional feminism, I think, is about sharing power and even before that, acknowledging the power. Mm-hmm. And I taught my decolonizing congregational leadership class again this spring um, for the newer incoming cohort of demon students and upper level master students. And I tried a few different things because I wrestled with this too as an instructor. Um, like you said, Mandy, I am the instructor. I give grades. I have the power to do that. Um, and there are lots of pedagogical strategies uh, out there. There's ungrading. There's lots of different ways to do this. I tried a few different specific ways of doing this. And some were from the previous class and some were new. The first one is that I invite individuals to share their own resources and wisdom and to frame the class as a co-learning environment. And I do that in very specific ways. I actually have assignments where people share their own resources for ministry um, that might help inform decolonial and post-colonial perspectives. And so I, I invite people to share the wisdom. I'm not just the head that's lecturing all the time. I help inform the readings, but really the response to the readings comes from students themselves. And I frame it in very specific ways. Um, And at the beginning of the course, I've been more intentional about naming who I am 
and naming my own power in the class um, and then saying, I'm sharing this with you. I'm giving you space to challenge, to share, to bring your own wisdom. And I find that that creates a really lively learning environment for people to bring in the fullness of who they are into the space. The, the other thing I tried, which was new, and I was kind of scared about how I was going to do this um, and whether it would work. And it seems kind of um, not in line with the way that I teach, but I asked everyone to refer to themselves and to choose an, an honoraria like or an um, honorific. So doctor or mister or mix or ms or miss or chaplain or pastor. And so that we would address each other mm. as pastor so-and-so, as chaplain so-and-so. And I actually got this idea from Reverend Dr. Val Jackson, who's been one of our mm -hmm. longtime internship seminar mm -hmm. instructors. And she did it as a way to help students visualize and live into their own pastoral identity and authority, but I found it a way to help students live into their own authority in the classroom as well. And I talk mm. about at the beginning how important it is for me to be doctor, Dr. Christina, and mm -hmm. what that looks like and how I don't, um, I want to be called doctor because if you extend that same courtesy to my male colleagues, you will extend that same courtesy mm. to me and, and mm -hmm. sort of quality right, in terms of gender and race and all of that. So I had one student name themselves captain for fun, right, like sort of a fun thing. I had chaplain, I had pastor, I had lots of, and mix, uh, which is the non-binary gender term, um, honorific, and, and it worked pretty well. Um, and I think the people that were most uncomfortable with it were the people that had the most privilege, sort of the white male identified folks mm. are like, well, I don't need that, right? Mm. And it's often mm. my white male colleagues who say, well, I don't wanna be referred to as Dr. So-and-so, we're all equal, but, but to mm. give that mm. privilege up so easily then makes it difficult for all of us who have worked really hard to earn that. And so it's very interesting that juxtaposition. So those are just a couple ways I don't know yeah. if they're all successful, but I, I was, it was fun to try that this, this time. Mm -hmm. it, well, it's a process. Well, and also what occurred to me while I, I do get, you know, the difference between um, a white cisgender male um, versus a, a biracial woman. Um, I am actually, actually deeply uncomfortable with titles. And I, I haven't quite figured out what that's about at this, at this exact moment. But what occurs to me is, is not living sort of into the work you've done or the amount of, um, you know, living into those titles is that you can use no titles and be all at this level, right? Or you can use those titles and all be at this level. So in some ways, um, it acknowledges the hard work and um, of everybody and who they are in the world. Um, it's just at a different level, right? Like it's still um, this equity and equality that is across the board, which is really fascinating, which my wheels are turning with, mm, what does that look like in the church space? Um, 
what would that actually look like um, in that in a community like that? Um, but well, anyway, yeah. Let me just yeah, add yeah. one piece to that because you've got my mind turning now. I I completely agree. I think there are ways and and ways that it might work for the church and ways that it might not work in the mm -hmm. church. But what would it be like if the pastor wasn't just pastor so-and-so? Like there were other people who had other mm -hmm. kinds of titles to acknowledge mm -hmm. the power that they had. And for me, it comes down to a really important decolonial praxis that is giving attention and space and honoring of our names and the mm -hmm. act of naming and, mm -hmm. and even developing some processes and acknowledgements of who we are, because naming is such a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. um, my beloved professor, Dr. Vincent Harding, who was a longtime teacher at ILIF, used to introduce each of his classes and and have each of us introduce ourselves by saying your full name and where you're from, your mother's full name and where she was from and born and your mm -hmm. mother's mother's full name mm -hmm. and where she was born to, to give that introduction into mm -hmm. who each of us were and are. And I found that to be a profoundly powerful mm -hmm. and just beautiful acknowledgement of each individual in the mm -hmm. space. And I wondered even if in the church, we gave attention and attentiveness to who we are and our names, mm -hmm. that that might be something um, that is intersectionally. Mm -hmm. Yes, which it actually leads me into, because what I'm thinking is it really, um, it actually centers the stories and voices, the full stories and the full of individuals in that space that not normally would um, have that story to tell or be offered that story to tell, but really centers all of Dr. Christina, all of the work and academia, academia you have done, the scholarship that you've done, and it centers that story in a way that might not be centered otherwise, which then leads me into, um, and I wanted to make sure, I also wanna be aware of the time. I just want, I'm aware of it, but I wanna ask this one more question um, before we move on around the idea of ritualizing relationship, because you know that I, I really love that phrase that I have gotten from the feminist scholar, Marjorie Proctor Smith, um, and have just, gone with it. And so I wonder, um, how does that land with you? I know that I've been talking with other people about it, um, not just on the podcast, but in the congregation, in my worship team that's doing this project. And they're like, what? And they're like, talk to me about that. And so, but I know that that's a phrase that could be meaningful to you as you were one of my teachers. And I wonder what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. In the context of worship, I'll start there. Ritualizing relationship is the heart of what worship is, in my mind. Um, that's the intent, whether it's relationship with one another, relationship with God, and relationship to the community beyond um, the congregation. And, and for me, as someone who is also partly a sociologist of religion and studies trends and 
different things like that, that's actually the definition of vitality. It's the definition of congregational vitality, our strength of connection with God, one another, and the world. And so for me, it's incredibly important as people of faith that we find ways to ritualize, um, to honor, maybe I would use the word honor, celebrate, to, um, yeah, I, I just acknowledge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, just mm -hmm. really something that is quite meaningful and beautiful. I think beyond sort of the walls of Protestant Christianity and our congregations, I don't know if that is as meaningful to folks beyond, but there are ways that our secular culture ritualizes relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Through marriage, through con contracts, right? Like all of these mm -hmm. different ways that colonial structures ritualize relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think being attentive to the ways that ritualizing relationship in life-giving ways that feed spirit, that feed one another and guide us toward wholeness is important because there are also ways to ritualize relationship that are life denying and that subjugate people and that deny people their full humanity. And so I think the way, of course, you are contextualizing it is mm -hmm. this intersectional feminist decolonial holistic way. But I, I wonder too, how ritualizing has been also used to harm people. So that's just sort of, you know me, I'm always kind of challenging right, right, right. Those, those different ways of understanding. No, absolutely. No, I think that that is good, good information for me, at least to take back out into the world. Um, this has been super juicy on so many levels, just um, a beautiful um, juiciness and lots of good information. And also the sharing of your experience um, in your world and your connection to all these practitioners and the data that you have gleaned. I, um, I appreciate it. And I'm so glad that you were able to come into this space with us so we can share that story with the world. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and you've energized me and I love talking about these things as you can tell and my Italianness and my Puerto Ricanness is on Super full display feisty. as I just talk all about all the things all the time. Super feisty. Yeah, that's who we are. <laughs> exactly. We non-Italians love it too. Thank you, Dr. Christina. Thank you. Join us next week for episode three of season seven, wear your grandmother's hat or have grandchildren with Tim Burnett from Way Collective. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash JHLTB. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.